Last night we saw that in the opening lines of Hebrews 1, the author is already developing some kind of contrast between what came before in the time of Moses and what has come now with the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. And that contrast continues throughout the book. Uh, We don't have time to examine every section, but at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, the argument essentially is that Jesus is better than Moses. Um, He's better on a particular axis. All kinds of comparisons could have been drawn. Points of similarity, points of dispute. For example, Moses is described in the Old Testament as the meekest man that ever lived. And Jesus in his turn comes along and and he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. There are points of comparison you could draw at at many junctures. But there is one contrast, a pair of contrasts, in fact, that are drawn, and then the author moves on again until we come to our passage, the one we're looking at today, where the argument is either simply that Jesus is better than Joshua, the earlier verses he's better than Moses, now he's better than Joshua, or more comprehensively, the rest that he introduces is better than the rest that the people enjoyed when they entered into the promised land. Now let me read the relevant verses. Chapter 3, verse 7, to chapter 4, verse 13. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Those are the closing lines of the Old Testament passage, Psalm 95, that we read just a few moments ago. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness, and to whom, God, to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest. 
Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there are a few mutterings when I say that. The, the, The liturgical response in some Anglican churches and some Uh, Presbyterian churches, when somebody reads the scripture and says, this is the word of the Lord, is thanks be to God. But I'm sure there are also uh, Baptists here and uh, others without much liturgical connection. Yet that little bit of liturgy is is a classic. It it really deserves to be preserved and practiced, don't you think? Besides, there's some people who want to say it, but because so many of us are not, they're sort of muttering it under their breath and not quite getting it out there, and it just sounds as if they're sort of choking or or something. So I have a solution. Uh, For the rest of this weekend, every time I finish reading Scripture and say, this is the word of the Lord, you will say... Yes, yes. Long live liturgical responses. (laughs) Now, one way of looking at this passage that I've just read is that um, it is an example of New Testament exegesis of the Old. That is, the passage begins by quoting a chunk of Scripture text, a few verses from Psalm 95, and then the rest of the section essentially expounds it. That's what happens. What is so interesting, however, about this exegesis is that it is in two quite distinct parts. There are two quite different arguments. And both arguments, I will submit, make a lot of sense. They are mutually complementary, but they're really quite different. The first argument is developed in chapter 3, verses 7 to the end of that chapter. And it is what might be called a moralizing argument. That is, the example of the um, Israelites in the Old Testament is picked up, how they escaped from slavery uh, in Egypt, but most of them, the entire generation from 20 and up, never did get into the Promised Land. They escaped from slavery. They never got into the Promised Land. And the argument is essentially, don't be like that. It's a moralizing argument. Now let me pause there for a moment. Every once in a while today, you hear warnings against moralizing readings of the Old Testament. They go like this. We've all heard sermon series on the life of Abraham, or sermon series on the life of Joseph, or sermon series on some of the kings in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, for example, and the sermons all run the same way. This was naughty, don't do that. This was good, make sure you do that. 
Here Abraham was somebody you should follow. Here he wasn't. Don't lie and get your wife in trouble. So, so, so you work through these passages and you draw these moralizing arguments. This king was a good king. Be like that. This king was a bad king. Don't be like that. And so you run through these endless biographical series and they all have exactly the same sort of moralizing argument. And that's all. How do you preach Christ out of that? And as a reaction to these sorts of moralizing sermons, people then start saying, don't preach moralizing sermons. What you should do instead is try to find out the connection through the life of Abraham or the life of Joseph or the kings of Israel or whatever that, that, that takes you through inner canonical connections all the way to Christ. You, you really must find a way through the, the connections, the canonical connections in the text itself to bring you all the way to Jesus. So in the case of Abraham, for example, his whole life revolves around the promise that was given him, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He, he, he is justified by faith. Long before there's any giving of the law, he's justified by faith. Paul makes a big deal of that. He's justified by faith, by faith before there is any giving of the, of, of the law at the time of Moses. That, that sets up a certain kind of priority in the scripture storyline. Preach that. And there's truth to all of these protestations. But the fact remains that sometimes the New Testament writers do read the Old Testament and draw moralizing lessons. Now that's not the only thing the New Testament draws. But here, in chapter 3, verses 7 to the end of the chapter, the lesson is essentially a moralizing lesson. And then in the second part, chapter 4, verses 1 and following, then the lesson drawn from Psalm 95 is a bit different. We'll come to what kind of argument that is in just a moment. But look first at the moralizing lesson. So as the Holy Spirit says, now one of the interesting things in the book of Hebrews is the diversity of ways in which Old Testament quotations are introduced. A wide number of ways. Clearly, it's a book that's ascribed to the work of the Holy Spirit. But then take a look at chapter 4, 4. Somewhere, someone has spoken about the seventh day in these words. doesn't even give a reference. Just somewhere, somebody has spoken highly diverse ways of referring to the Old Testament. But here, the Holy Spirit says, and then you get this clip from Psalm 95. What Psalm 95 is describing is some of Israel's experiences in the desert. There is an array of historical psalms, and these psalms repeat some of the history in order to draw certain points. Um, That way of preaching was not uncommon in Jewish circles. For example, Stephen's speech that you find in the book of Acts, he's about to be martyred, and and he gives a sermon. And what does he do? He tells the story of Israel again. But he tells it with a distinct slant. You see, you you can tell history in a lot of different ways. Oh, I'm sorely tempted now to tell you British history (laughs) in two ways. Except... There's an example even closer to home. I was talking to someone, even, even since I arrived, who, who, who went to essentially English-oriented schools and got a lot of British history that way, and then went down to Dublin and studied history all over again and got a slightly different slant. It's the same story, isn't it? So I, I, I could relate to you American history, likewise, or Canadian history. Let, it, let, let's be safe. Let, let's blame the Americans now. It, it's, 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 it's safe to talk about the Americans, isn't it? Um, 
America was founded by pilgrims who left this country because they were being persecuted for their faith, and they landed on Plymouth Rock in the early 1600s and celebrated the first Thanksgiving and worshipped God and de- determined, determined to build a godly country. Um, and in due course, uh, because they did not want taxation without representation, they rebelled against the crown. King George III was a bit nuts in any case. What do you expect? And so in due course, they became a separate independent nation. And the, the Constitution became a model for uh, nations all around the world. And um, they had never really dealt with a slavery issue. But in the Civil War, they really did deal with that one. And in due course, decisively, slavery was put down. And on and on and on and on. Guess, guess which country came to Europe's age in, aid in World War I and in World War II. A little slow to get there. But nevertheless, they got there in the end. And, and, and so I can tell the story. Isn't that rapturously exciting if you're an American? Then I can retell the story. Europeans showed up and brought their disease and their guns to North America and slaughtered the Indians. Yes, they rebelled against the crown, but let's be quite frank, it was not a huge persecution. Do you rebel against governments and bring in anarchy and civil strife just because you're paying a few extra bucks in taxes? And and you know, they write this noble document call the American Constitution, but, 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 but manage at the same time to preserve slavery. George Washington was a slaveholder. And, and, um, and in due course, it led to the bloodiest war, proportionally, that America's ever fought with 600,000 people at a time when the total population was quite small, butchered. And then after the war, in so-called Reconstruction, um, there, there was so much vengeance taken out on the, sa- on the South that there's still, there's still strife to this day. But that really didn't end it. The Jim Crow laws were still in place. And yes, 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 America came to America's aid. But which country has ever dropped an atom bomb on anybody else in war? Now, now you see, I'm telling the same story, aren't I? But it's a different slant. And cheer up, lest you feel too self-righteous. Now I've clobbered the Americans. You can do that with any country. (laughs) Because we're such mixed breeds, aren't we? We have such checkered histories. Now, if you're a first century Jew, then you want to tell your story along the lines of, yes, it's amazing God chose the Jew. He could have chosen a powerful nation, the Hittites maybe, or the Assyrians, but in fact, God chose the Jews. He gave us his law and his covenant. He's appeared again and again, not only from the founding patriarchs, but again and again in history. And when we've been struggling and, 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 and oppressed, God sent along a, a, a redeemer, a, a leader like Moses, and gave us a terrific law code that, that, um, that uh, established the nation as a nation, gave us land and territory. And, and, and uh, yes, we have fallen aside again and again, but God has been so good to us and in mercy has brought us back to himself. And, and, and he's promised a coming redeemer, and we await the arrival of that redeemer with bated breath. All true. All true. Or I could retell the story. Yeah, God chose us not because we were good or powerful or righteous or anything like that, but just because he's that kind of God. And we've repaid him by killing the prophets and despising his covenants and 
And again and again, when God and mercy has come and redeemed us, it's only taken half a generation to a generation before we've rebelled once more and multiplied idolatry. And small wonder that God has come after us again and sent us off into exile, first the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And when he did start to restore us, we made a muck of that too in, in all kinds of ways. We had to have prophets to come along and tell us to rebuild the temple, for, for goodness sake. And even then it was a bit of a two-bit affair. And, and, and then when we finally got our, our, our freedom from all external authorities in the second century before Christ, uh, we blew it again and just put in the rebel leaders and, and kept, kept the power that way because we couldn't bother restoring the Davidic dynasty about which God had promised so much. In other words, I can retell the whole story that way too, can't I? And that's all true. And what Stephen does in his summary of Israel's history really is to say, don't you see that when you read Israel's history with a critical eye, again and again and again when God has come to us in glory and grace and revelation, we've rebelled against him. So now the Messiah has come. It's not too surprising that we bumped him off too. That's basically his argument. Because the Jews have no category for a crucified Messiah. Messiahs win. Messiahs are powerful. Messiahs rule. Messiahs reign. And instead, we've bumped this one off. He can't really be the real Messiah, can he be? We wouldn't bump off a Messiah in any case. We'd welcome him, surely, wouldn't we? But by retelling the story this way, suddenly the crucifixion of the Messiah does not sound so bizarre after all. It sounds rather in line with the history of Israel. Now, Psalm 95 is one of the psalms, then, that retells Israel's history. There are other psalms that do the same thing. Psalm 78 does the same thing at, at, in greater detail, at greater length. But the thrust of Psalm, 78, uh, of Psalm 95 is this. God is so good. He is so full of grace. He deserves to be praised. Yet the fact of the matter is that the nation as a whole, after God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt, then they whined and complained at Massah and at Meribah. The food wasn't good. There was no water. And eventually they don't get into the promised land because they rebel at Kadesh Barnea. That's not specifically mentioned by name. They, 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 they rebel and they, they, they believe the word of their cynical and despairing spies rather than the promises of God. And so a whole generation from 20 and up gets wiped out over the next decades. For 40 years they spend wandering around the wilderness and it's their children who finally do get in under Joshua they finally get into the land of rest. And now Psalm 95 comes along and says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as your forebears did. So Psalm 95 is already making a moralizing argument around the time of David on the basis of what did take place at the time of Moses. It's a moralizing argument. And now Psalm 95 quotes is quoted by Hebrews. Hebrews 3 quotes Psalm 95 to repeat the moralizing argument. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, and then that's picked up again, so, verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's still the same moralizing argument updated one more time. Just as the Israelites had an unbelieving, sinful, complaining, whining heart in the desert, so... The readers in David's day are being warned, warned against that in Psalm 95, and now the readers in Hebrews' day are being warned against it one more time. Rather, encourage one another today as long as it is called today. Now, the author is picking up the first word of the quotation. Today, if you hear his voice. The author is saying, don't you see, there's a kind of today that is ongoing. This is not referring now to what took place in Moses' day, but today. Today, you're responsible for not having this whining, complaining, hardened 
heart, deceived by sin's deceitfulness. Indeed, verse 14, here's the point of the entire moralizing argument. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Underline it. Memorize it. It's absolutely crucial for understanding the epistle of the Hebrews. The argument in brief is this. You can test the validity of someone's faith by its perseverance. You can test the validity of someone's faith by whether or not it sticks. We have come to share in Christ. Some versions have. We have become partakers of Christ. Put it in contemporary idiom. We have become genuine Christians. If we hold our original conviction steadfast to the end. Because there are lots of instances in Scripture where people do not continue. In which case, eventually, a question mark is put over the genuineness of that faith. Think of some examples. This is going to be important for the second session this morning as well. So it's worth getting this one straight now. Think of 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. My little children, it is the last hour. And as you know that uh, Antichrist is coming, John writes, so also there are many Antichrists already here. So that's how we know it's the last hour. And then he says this, They went out from us <coughs> in order that it might be made clear that they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that they were not of us. So these were baptized members in good standing in the church. But even though they were baptized members in good standing in the church, and therefore were accepted as fellow Christians, yet they went out from us. They turned their back on the faith. And the reason why this happened, John writes, they went out from us in order that it might be made clear that they were not of us. But their going showed that they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. In other words, it's their going that showed that their faith wasn't genuine after all. Because, by definition, genuine faith sticks. Genuine faith, by definition, perseveres. Now, that is not um, failing to acknowledge that sometimes uh, people slide up and down and there can be temporary backsliding and all the rest. We'll come to more of these things later. <coughs> But over the long haul, by definition, genuine faith sticks. Or think of Jesus' parable of the sower. It's really the parable of the soils, because that's the variable. It's the same seed that is sown. It's the same sower sowing it. The variable in the story is the different soils. And some seed falls on hard-packed ground, and the birds of the air come and take the seed away before it ever gets into the soil and germinates. And Jesus interprets that element of the parable to, 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 to mean sometimes when the seed is sown, the devil, as it were, comes and takes it out of our minds and replaces it with other things before we have time to think about it. And it does some real good. But the one that's interesting from our point of view is the seed that falls on rocky ground. Rocky ground in first century Palestine is, is ground with a, a thin layer of topsoil and underneath is a limestone bedrock. <coughs> 
So the seed falls into this thin layer of soil in the time of the early rains in the spring. And because the soil is so shallow, it heats up the fastest as the spring sun gathers strength. Therefore, this seed germinates the fastest and it seems to be the most promising of the crop. It sets up shoots right away. And then the rain stops. There's no more rain until the latter rains. And the roots go down looking for moisture and they hit the limestone bedrock and the plant keels over and dies. Jesus interprets it. He says, This represents those who immediately receive the word with joy. In other words, they seem like the most promising of the converts. But afterwards, he says, when trouble or tribulation or suffering comes, then they keel over and die. They have no enduring root. They, they never do bear fruit on the long haul. They, 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 they have this exactly the same significance as those where the seed is taken away before it's, it's done anything. In other words, the real ones, the genuine ones, are the ones that stick and persevere and ultimately bear fruit. Jesus says elsewhere, by their fruit you shall know them. Or to use language that is coined by the Apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and following, we read these words. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that is held out for you in the gospel. In other words, genuine faith, by definition, sticks. So, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. That's what he's exhorting people to do, to persevere. As has just been said, now he quotes part of the psalm again, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Don't follow that negative example. And then he rubs it in a little more strongly, verses 16 and following. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they apostates from the very beginning? Were they reprobates? Were they people who had no interest in God, who had never experienced anything of his grace? No, no. Were they not those that Moses led out of Egypt? They had actually participated in some measure of redemption. They had been saved from slavery. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? People like uh, the Egyptians themselves or uh, people like the Hittites or the abominable Assyrians with their terror tactics and so on? Were those the ones that God was angry with for 40 years? No, no. Was it not with those who sinned but who had been taken out of Egypt who had tasted something of the grace of God and now they sin in the desert and they, they die like flies for 40 years? To whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? It was those who had tasted of God and then disobeyed. In other words... The Exodus is seen, as it were, in two parts, the Exodus as a whole. The actual coming out of slavery and then the going into the promised land. And part of that generation enjoyed the first part, but never got into the second part. Now, part of our problem when we think about these things today, I think, is that we have too glib a doctrine of conversion. Provided you've prayed the prayer, well, then, once saved, always saved. That's it. And there's a sense in which that's right. 
That is, if you really are genuinely converted, then God's grace will persevere with you till the very end. That's, that's, that's true. But just because you've prayed the prayer doesn't mean that you have persevering faith. You might be among those that are described by the parable of the sower. That is, receive it with joy, but there's no root. There is no transformation. There is no life-giving water flowing through that produces fruit. And so, in due course, the plant keels over and dies. If we had a more nuanced doctrine of conversion, we would be better able to integrate chapter 3, verse 14 in our theology. Genuine faith, by definition, sticks. And so far, the argument has been entirely moralizing from Psalm 95, which is an entirely moralizing argument based on the experience of the Israelites in chapter in, in, in the Exodus account. With me so far? Now then, the second argument is not a moralizing argument. It picks up the moralizing argument, but it goes way beyond it. It is what might be called a salvation historical argument, which is just a way of saying it's an argument that turns on the sweep of God's saving acts in history. Now, if that seems a bit obscure... Be patient for a few moments because you'll see that it really is important and it's an argument that keeps showing up in the book of Hebrews. We'll, we'll pick up another one of those tonight. Therefore, chapter 4, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful, etc., etc. Now, stop for a moment to think about that. That's already beginning to give the game away. He'll, he'll spell it out in the following lines, but it's beginning to give the game away. Supposing you're a first century, you're, you're, you're a Jew at the time of Moses, and you're 18 years old. You've escaped slavery, you're 18 years old. You don't belong to the really cynical generation that's going to get wiped out over 40 years in the desert. You will eventually enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And that is repeatedly called entering into God's promised rest. You enter into rest. You'll finally get into the promised land. The land will become yours. You will live to see it. You will enter into God's rest. Now several centuries passed. And with these centuries now behind you, you're another Jew living at the time of David. And there the voice of God says, Today, if you don't hear, if you don't harden your heart, you can enter into my rest. And you start thinking, Wait a minute, I thought that our ancestors did enter into God's rest. They, they entered into God's rest when they got into the promised land. We're already in the promised land. What, what, what do you mean we can still enter into God's rest? And then along comes the writer to the Hebrews, and a millennium after that, he's still applying the same scripture today. If you don't harden your heart, you can enter into God's rest. And you want to say, wait a minute, a millennium and a half ago, our ancestors did enter into God's rest. Or, or... Psalm 95, then, must be saying, surely, that entering into the promised land was not entering into the final rest. There has to be more to rest than entering into the promised land. Do do, do, do you see? That's already presupposed by the very first line of chapter 4, although it's going to be teased out. Since the promise of entering his rest still stands. That is, it still stands even after the people get into the promised land. It still stands in the writer of the Hebrews' day. So we too, therefore, have to be careful that none of us is found to have fallen short of it. 
For we've had a gospel, we've had the gospel, the good news proclaimed to us as they had the gospel, good news of God's grace in their lives, God's grace that would take them out of slavery into their own country, into their own territory. But the message that they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So they got out of slavery. They didn't get into the promised land. They didn't enter into the promised rest. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. They shall never enter my rest. There is a rest from God that's there. And now the author begins to reflect on the little word, my. God says they shall never enter into my rest. And the author thinks, yes, but where is God's rest first introduced? My rest? This author is given to tracking out themes that run right through the canon. Where is God's rest first introduced? It's introduced in the creation account. God makes everything, he declares that it's very good, and then God rested on the seventh day. And he declares it all good. God's rest is first mentioned when God rests from his work of creation on the seventh day. And so that's what he picks up here. Yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in this passage above from Psalm 95. They shall never enter into my rest. How is the rest of God at the end of creation related to the rest of God that the people in David's day must get into? He's beginning to link themes, but how how do they actually get tied together? Press on. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter into that rest, even after they've got into the promised land, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today, as in Psalm 95. That's what God used Uh, that's the term he used. That's the language that he deploys in Psalm 95. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David. Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, that is when he brought them into the promised land, God would not have spoken later of another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest. Uh Uh-oh, now we've introduced another category. Do you see what we've got here? We've got a whole strain. You've got to assume this is a whiteboard here or a, a PowerPoint display. And over here you have God's rest at the end of creation. And then at the time of Moses, you have the giving of the law. And the law stipulates, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and rested the seventh day. So God's rest on the seventh day at creation becomes the paradigmatic force behind the Sabbath law at the time of Moses. And then the people entered into the promised land, not at the time of Moses, but at the time of Joshua. And then later on at the time of David, God is still saying, today if you, hear his, if you hear his voice, you may enter into the rest and make sure that you don't harden your hearts or else you won't enter into his rest, which presupposes that this rest at the time of Joshua was not sufficient. It was not absolute. It was not complete. There, there was more rest beyond that. There's more to entering into the rest of God than just getting into the promised land. Do, 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 do you see? And now you're pressing on toward rest that's showing up in Hebrews' day. What that means, in other words, is that the exodus and entering into the promised land was never meant to be everything. 
It was meant to be paradigmatic of greater rest still to come. There are some lessons to be learned from entering into that rest or failing to enter into that rest because of unbelief. But it wasn't the ultimate rest. There's more rest still to come. So that in David's day, people are in the land, but they're still not enjoying the rest of God. What are they doing? Well, they're still rebelling against him. They're wandering off in idolatry, but they're certainly not entering into God's rest. In fact, what does it mean to enter into God's rest? Verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. In other words, he goes back to the first instance of God's rest all the way back in creation. And he asks, what does it mean for God to rest? Does it mean that God needs a snooze? He's worn out and tired. He has to increase his sleep quota at night. It doesn't mean any of those things. He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. When it says he rests from his works, it means he rests from his work of creation. Creation is done. People like to speak of God's ongoing work of creation. Rubbish. That's not a New Testament category. It's not an Old Testament category. The creation work is done. Oh, God continues in his superintending reign. He reigns through Christ, we've seen at the beginning of chapter 1, so that he maintains all things by his powerful word. But he's not creating things and you out of nothing. God has rested from his work of creation. It's come to an end. That's stopped. It's done. And now he maintains things and he governs things and he supervises things. But, but the work of creation is, is done. He rested from his works. And if you want to enter into God's rest, you've got to rest from your works. That's what the text says. To enter into God's rest, you can't be presu- presenting yourself before God as if somehow you deserve this or you've earned it or you're trying harder and that's how you get in. No, you, you have to actually follow the example of God in this respect. To enter into God's rest means you come to the end of presenting your works. You enter into his rest. And instead, even after the people are in the promised land, they're falling into sin or presenting themselves as righteous because they try harder, trying to curry favor with God, earn brownie points, following the formal structures of the law while their hearts are far from God? How, how is that coming to an end of their works? How is that trusting the provision is he, he has offered in the, in the sacrificial system? They haven't come to an end of their works. They're not resting in God. They're striving. They're fighting. They're struggling. They're jealous. They're playing one-upmanship games. They're playing little spirituality games. Or else they're falling into rampant idolatry and paganism again and again and again. How is that entering into the rest of God? And now we've come to Jesus. The author doesn't quote these words. He may have written before they were written. But any thoughtful Christian will remember that Jesus, in the days of his flesh, according to Matthew 11, said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, the ultimate rest that this author wants us to enter into is salvation rest where we come to an end of our works and trust Christ. The ultimate creation rest is the new creation rest. The ultimate Sabbath rest is not Sunday. The ultimate Sabbath rest is the experience of the gospel. And clearly it's not only experience of the gospel as the writer to the, as the readers of the the epistle of the Hebrews have begun to experience it, but it's it's the culmination of the gospel. After all, the the author is writing to Christians and says, there is a sense in which you have escaped 
the old slavery of sin. Now the question is whether you will press on to the ultimate rest. Will you continue all the way to the end? The ultimate rest, that is, of the new heaven and the new earth, of resurrection existence, of the final rest that all of God's people will enjoy in resurrection existence in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, where we really will finally, completely, and totally rest from our works, rest in God, and enjoy the presence of God <coughs> without any sort of caveat or contesting forever and ever and ever. To that end, we must press lest we fall away out of hardness of heart and unbelief. Let us, therefore, verse 11, make every effort to enter that rest, this culminating rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Now, the last two verses of this unit, verses 12 and 13, are often taken together and preached as a passage of independent venue to talk about the Bible. But it's not as if the author is coming along talking about rest and then thinking, oh, by the way, I would like you to think for a bit about the Bible. Now, I'm changing topic. I'd like, I'd like to talk about the nature of Scripture. Rather, in the flow of the argument, verses 12 to fi- and 13 are talking about the function of Psalm 95 in the argument. This is not changing topic. It's explaining what has gone on under this topic. For the Word of God, that is, the Word of God in Psalm 95, is alive and active. It's still calling people, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. It still has this function of probing our indifference and our disobedience and our unbelief and calling us to faithfulness as long as it is called today. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the hearts and attitudes of the heart. It, 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 the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It, it pierces within us and calls us in, to, to <laughs> repentance and contrition. For after all, the God who stands behind the scripture is not looking on the superficials of life. It's looking at our thought, our most inner beings, joints and marrow, soul and spirit, the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. An account because this God comes to us today and says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now then, what's the nature of this second argument? It's salvation historical. That is, it's not just a moralizing argument. It's an argument that depends on unpacking the Bible storyline. God's rest. Sabbath rest. Failure enter into the promised land and then under Joshua getting into the promised land. But even after they get into the promised land... God's still saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts at the time of David, and implicitly saying something still today to us. Now, the validity of that argument depends on the sequence. In other words, the people did get into the promised land. They did, in that sense, enter into God's rest. 
But after they have got into the promised land, if God is still saying, today, if you do not harden your heart, you will enter into that rest, presupposes that God himself is declaring that that earlier rest is not the final rest. It is in that sense only typical. It's a paradigm. It's a pattern looking forward to greater rest. In other words, it's a way of reading the Old Testament narrative that is looking for patterns and sequences that point forward to the ultimate. In this case, the theme is rest. There is a sequence of things the Bible says about rest that shows that the entrance into the promised land in the time of Joshua after the Exodus was not entering into the ultimate rest. There's more rest still to come. There is promise of more to come. Don't you see? And the aim is to build up expectation as the Old Testament pages roll on, as the history of God's redemption rolls on, to build up anticipation toward that ultimate rest that comes with the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest for your souls. And even there, the rest that we already experience in Christ, rest from our guilt, rest from our shame, rest from our sin, rest from our culpability before God, is still anticipating the ultimate purity of perfect rest in the new heaven and the new earth still to come. And we belong to this long sequence of events across the Bible. The Bible is thus inviting us to read the Bible in its sequential unpacking of the storyline. That's all that is meant by a salvation historical reading. To see how this trajectory, this drift of things, drives us toward Christ and all that he brings. Now that argument is made again and again and again in Hebrews. In this case, with the trajectory of rest, we'll see later this evening, a trajectory of the nature of the priesthood forms another trajectory that drives us towards seeing how the Bible is actually put together. Thus, Psalm 95, according to the exposition of Hebrews, teaches us a moralizing lesson. Don't fall away. And it also teaches us how to read the Bible sequentially. There is a whole pattern that is driving you to the rest that is in Christ. Read it that way. If this raises some questions in your mind, wait a minute, Don, this is all very interesting about how the Bible is to be put together with various trajectories, but does this mean that Christians can fall away? That there's no sense in which we're firmly preserved to the very end? Well, that's what we'll deal with in the next section. Let's pray. (laughs) Let's pray. Our Father, sometimes we are so busy and so active, so energetic that we tire ourselves out in the endless search for stimulus and uh, imagination and friendship and social intercourse and we have no time to reflect on what it means to rest in you. But in our most sober moments, Lord God, we want to come to an end of ourselves and rest from our labors, rest from our works, 
as in a paradigmatic fashion, you yourself rested at the end of the creation week. Even more so, Lord God, we want to understand how the various voices of Scripture all lead into these glorious trajectories that point to Christ, to the one who said, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Undoubtedly, there are some who have gathered in this room who are carrying burdens that no one else knows about. Maybe burdens of shame and guilt. Burdens of fatigue, pressure from family. The frustrations of existence. The burdens imposed by our chosen perfectionisms and our failures to meet them. The burdens of frayed disappointments in which we keep struggling and struggling and find ourselves unable to cope while still maintaining a veneer of a triumph of a perfect adjustment while inwardly we're still squirming and uncomfortable and un- uh, not at ease in our inmost beings. Oh Lord God, we dare come before you and recall that you are the God who speaks to us yet through the words of David 3,000 years ago. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the days of provocation. We listen even more attentively to the one who spoke 2,000 years ago. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we bow before him afresh and ask for rest in our very beings. And then further for grace to persevere in this rest until the culminating rest still to come. Forbid that any of us should be amongst those who drift away or harden our hearts in unbelief like the generation in the wilderness. But grant us persevering faith knowing that we have been made sharers of Christ if we hold our original conviction steadfast to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.